Well, good morning, everybody in this room. Good morning in the communion venue. Good morning online. However it is that you're here, we're glad that you're here. Why don't you turn in your Bibles? And today, we're going to come to the conclusion of a journey we've been taking through the whole book of Acts that we started back in the beginning of January. So turn to chapter 28. The ushers are in the aisles if you need to borrow a, bi- uh, a, to borrow a Bible. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 28, let's just do a little survey here. Who thinks that the Astros can take it tonight? <laughs> Me too. Anybody think it might be tomorrow? Yeah, well, are you? anybody afraid we may have lost our home field advantage by coming home? I, that's, that's what really concerns me the most, but hopefully not. Hopefully uh, it ends, uh, well, it can only end one of two ways, right? It'll end climactically or it ends anticlimactically for the Astros, but I think it's going to be climactic. I mention that because today we come to the end of Acts. And if you've been following along, it's a story that Dr. Luke has been writing. He's telling this whole story. He's been describing what's been happening for 30 years in the early church. The Holy Spirit's come and all that's been happening for 30 years or so. And he's really building it up uh, with, with what's happening, particularly in Paul's life. And you're going to get to the very end today. And uh, But before we get there, let's just remember some of the buildup that, Paul, that Luke's been giving uh, to, 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 to Paul. What had happened in Paul's life up in the 20s of Acts 20, uh, well, the, uh, the upper 20s, certainly as we move towards chapter 28, following his return from the third missionary journey that he's taken, uh, he goes back to his homeland of Judea, and he's falsely accused, just like his Lord had been, by the Jewish leaders. He's been imprisoned. He's almost been killed. All of this is consuming about two years. He has to go before trial, before uh, Festus and, and Agrippa, and before that, Felix. And finally, he realizes, I'm never going to get a fair hearing if I don't get out of this region. I appeal to Rome. I want to go before Caesar. And you could ask for that if you were a Roman citizen. Now, you wouldn't want to do that if you didn't think you had a pretty solid case because they could come down pretty hard on you if you're wasting Rome's time on your your case. So he appeals, and they put him in a boat with a bunch of other prisoners and start shipping him across the Mediterranean over there to Rome in Italy. One, one commentator I was reading said, this was no princess cruise. This was a prison cruise, all right? And, and it gets worse because they have shipwreck. The, the boat breaks apart, and, and the soldiers were thinking about killing all, the, all, all of the prisoners, but the, but the centurion says, no, 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 don't kill them, and don't kill Paul. Um, and so they cling to bits and parts of the wreckage, and they sort of float and paddle their way onto the island of Malta down there in the Mediterranean. And so they get onto the island of Malta and they decide we better build a fire to warm ourselves. And as Paul is reaching in for some firewood, he grabs a viper that bites him. And talking about a bad day. I mean, it's just going from bad to worse. And But Paul's being protected by God this whole journey and he doesn't swell up and 
And the, and the locals are like, at first they thought, aha, see, you're a murderer. But then he doesn't even swell and he just shakes it off into the fire and goes on. And then they're like, he's a god. And, and so it's like, no, actually, uh, but Paul had had that before, so he, he doesn't let it get to his head. Finally, after being there in Malta for three months, it's time they're going to push out and... Uh, the ministry at Malta is going to come to an end because he's been doing ministry. He's been healing people there and he's been preaching the gospel. And, but now it's a new season, sailing season again, and they have a new boat. And so I want to uh, uh, close it out, but let's read in Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 11. Here we go. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Uh, keep those two names in mind. It was, these were two faces of the mythological gods, Roman and, myth, and, uh, and Greek mythology. And, and they were supposed to be the gods that kept everybody safe on the seas. Okay, so verse 12. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. And from there we set sail and arrived in Regium. And the next day the south wind came up. And on the following day we reached Pudioli, where they ate ravioli. No, not really. And there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. Now, wait for it. We're getting to the climax of the book. And so we came to Rome. Underline those, those six words, all right? Because Paul, remember, Paul's been wanting to get to Rome for some time. He's been wanting to preach the gospel in the most powerful city of the Roman Empire there. And finally, he's, now, is he getting there the way he expected? No, he's not getting there the way he expected. He's not free. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's charged as a criminal, and he's uh, under chains and everything. But so where does he go? Verse 16, jump down to 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. And go down to verse 30. And for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Thus ends the book of Acts. Wasn't that the most climactic ending you've ever read? No. It's, 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 it's kind of anticlimactic, right? After all that he's gone through, Luke's been telling us all these things, and then he just kind of ends it. Boom, there he is sitting in prison, house prison, for, uh, for two years. And the book ends. It reminds me of Seinfeld. Uh, a funny show about nothing, right? And like you, many of you, that is, uh, I've seen probably over the years all the episodes. But I definitely remember when a, uh, a group of friends, we gathered to watch the finale. And what are they going to do? And, and, you know, it was okay. And they showed kind of rewind and, and clips and old characters came back and this sort of thing. And finally it ends with Jerry and Elaine and uh, Kramer and, and uh, George Costanza. There they are sitting in jail. And the show fades out. And after a moment of silence, somebody in our group goes, wow, that was amazing. And the rest of us are like, no. <laughs> what kind of ending is that? An anticlimactic ending. Now, I can't help you a lick with Seinfeld, but hopefully 
by the time we're done today, I can help you maybe understand a little bit more of what Luke was doing here as he comes to the conclusion of Acts. First off, remember, this imprisonment, this wasn't the only one that Paul had, this imprisonment that he's in right here, this isn't a dungeon prison. Um, this is a house arrest prison, and, uh, which reveals how much the authorities weren't really worried that he was that much a threat to society. And so we can extrapolate from some of his writings uh, to Philemon and to the Philippians, um, you know, what was going on. Uh, tradition holds uh, that he would eventually uh, get out of that prison. How do we ascertain that or extrapolate that? Well, from some of these writings that he would uh, give us, some extra biblical writings as well. So how did he get away? Most likely, scholars surmise, his Judean accusers, those Jewish leaders over by Jerusalem, they probably were like, you know, Rome is a long way, and I don't know if our case is really going to have that much moxie if we get over outside of our territory. And they probably just let the two-year statute, uh, statutory period run out. And then the case is over, and he gets to go free. Tradition holds that Paul would indeed live on probably six or seven more years probably uh, continued to do mission work, a fourth missionary journey that we don't have a record of, but, but throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Aegean area. And maybe he did fulfill the dream that he had in Romans 15 expressed of getting all the way down to Spain and getting the gospel into Spain. That part we don't know. But what I want to talk about is what we do know as we come to the end of the series today. We do know a couple of things that were happening in Paul's life here in this imprisonment that he was going through for uh, two years in Rome. One thing he got done, he got a lot of writing done. He was going to write letters to Christians. Uh, well, in fact, he would write the book of Philippians while he was in that imprisonment. He would write Colossians. He would write Ephesians. He would write Philemon. And a second thing, in addition to writing, he was entertaining guests. People could come and go. He was chained to an officer uh, that would change every four hours. And so he always had a guard. But he could take people and, and he could talk to them and share the gospel, encourage them and all of these sorts of things. And every indication we have is that a lot of people came and were bolstered by his faith. I'll show you that in a few moments. But just imagine if you had been living back then. You're a new Christian. You're living in this Roman world. Here's the Roman soldiers marching around. and I'm a follower of Christ. And I know sometimes Christians are getting killed. And somebody says to you, hey, I just heard the apostle Paul. You know who he is? Yeah, I know who he is. He's here. Like he's in Rome. Seriously? Yeah. In fact, word has it he's in house prison. But they're giving him freedom to talk to people. And he's welcoming anybody who wants to come and talk with him. Want to go? Can you imagine that? Uh, look again at what uh, verse 30 said. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. So, why do you suppose people wanted to come 
and see him. Well, I'll tell you why it wasn't. It wasn't that he wrote a letter saying, you know what? I deserve better for crying out loud. I got an officer chained to me 24-7. I don't eat in privacy. I don't sleep in privacy. I don't even go to the bathroom in privacy. This is an outrage. I deserve better than this. No, I suspect had he written that, nobody would like to have come see him anyhow. There's nothing terrifically different or unique or inspiring about that, is there? No, but what we do see is he was saying something totally, totally different. That's what we get from his writings. Particularly, I want to take us to Philippians because I think we're going to see several key things and maybe see them in a new light that you haven't noticed them before. Philippians chapter 1. We're just going to look at three verses to get a better sense of what was going on inside of Paul and why people were coming to, to, to see him while he was there in that Roman imprisonment. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, he, he's writing to the Philippian Christians. Remember, they, they've, he loves them. They've been generous to him. And they're worried about him. They've heard he's in prison. And so he's, he's sending word up there to Philippi to these Christians. And he's saying, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's not so bad. And as a result of my being here in prison, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everybody that I'm in chains for Christ. Not much harm in that, right? And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and they're daring all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What I want us to notice in our remaining time is three things. Three things that I think help us to understand this uh, shining, resilient, robust, contagious faith that the Apostle Paul had that people from all over wanted to meet him and talk to him and just draw some of that strength spiritually. Hear his story of his conversion on the Damascus Road and how he'd been transformed from killing Christians to becoming the most influential Christian of all history. Three things I noticed. First is this. Paul learned how to rise above his circumstances. He rose above his circumstances. You see that in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He could have, as I said, been lamenting, oh, this is terrible, the food is bad, and bad, da, 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 you know, but he's not doing that. He's saying, actually, it's not so bad. He's rising above the circumstances so the Philippians could know we don't need to worry about him. I'll tell you what I noticed. Paul's operating at a higher level than a lot of us operate at. Even us believers who all too often, I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to say, we, we willingly jump into the mud, don't we? And we start fuming at somebody who cut us off on the highway, snapping at somebody at home or somebody at work who'd done us wrong or fussing about this or that situation that's on TV or in the politics or whatever. And here's Paul. He's, he's there in prison, but he's calm. He's cool. He's collected. And he's got a different soldier coming in a different part of the Praetorian Guard, every four hours strapping up to him in chains. And despite his circumstances, he's not seeing it as 
God, these are terrible circumstances. How's he framing it in his mind? He's saying, hey, this isn't so bad. People can come and go, and actually, these, these, these guys come and go, and I get to tell them all about Jesus. Talk about a captive audience. They're chained to me for four hours. In fact, they're not chained to me. Uh, I'm not chained to them. They're chained to me. And what more could an evangelist want? Round-the-clock captive audience. You know, so you get this, 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 the feeling that, that he was like, hey, soldier, what's your name? Okay, you know anything about God and spiritual things? And No, not really. Okay, good thing that you came because we got four hours. We're going to make them count. Sit down, here we go, all right? Let me tell you about God and how good he is and how holy he is. And let me tell you about us, how bad we are and how sinful that we are. And did you realize that God, he could have destroyed us, but instead he came towards us and he, he put on flesh and blood and his name is Jesus and he lived a life we couldn't live and he died a death that we all deserved and then he conquered the grave. And if you'll put your trust into Jesus, as I did one day on my Damascus road, experience to kill the Christians. His same Holy Spirit living inside of me will come inside of you and it'll give you power and it'll give you strength and it'll give you purpose in your life and it'll change everything. And apparently it was working. Apparently a lot of these people were saying, I think I'd, I think I'd like that. See, Paul, Paul realized who he was his mindset, his joy, it's unrelated to the circumstances. He was, he'd learned how to rise above them. Oh, that we could learn how to rise above them. I remember learning uh, and witnessing this myself. Uh, years ago, I was involved as a younger pastor in a prison ministry. Every month, we would go up a couple of hours to one of the maximum security prisons, uh, probably 20 of us pastors, and we would do a mentoring ministry. And it was a lot of rigmarole to get through. A lot of security and identification and, and checkpoints and going through two fences with barbed wires and guards all up and down the place and the watchtowers. I mean, it was kind of a moment. And then you'd get inside and the smell, man, I just, whoa, it would just ugh, kind of make you want to vomit. It just smelled so bad in there. And I always dreaded that part. But finally, you kind of get used to it once you've been in there for a while. And, and then the chaplain would come in and he would say, all right, follow me. And he'd lead us through the corridors. And it was just a dark place. And you just feel the oppressiveness in it. But then he'd come up to the chapel door and he'd unlock the chapel door. And, and he'd say, all right, go on in and spread out. And the, the brothers in white, that's what they call them, will be here in a few moments. About five or ten minutes later, the door would open and and probably 75, 100 brothers in white would come in. These are the believers. And they looked forward to this chapel that they got to have every single month. And they would come in and we'd see, and we knew them. I mean, they knew us. We knew them because we were going back every month. And, and we'd hug and high five. And how's it been going? And how'd that thing go that you were working on that we were going to pray about? And, and how, you, how you've been letting your light shine even in this dark place? And we'd sing songs and we're locking shoulders and rocking back and forth. I never swayed with such muscular people in my life. I mean, they're all tatted up every which way you can get tatted and, and, and they have Christ in them. And it's just, it was, it was, it was inspiring because see, in them, I was learning, huh, when your circumstances are the worst, 
you still can live with hope. You still can live with victory. (laughs) You can still keep going along and having joy. I want to have you realize that. Have you realized that yet? Are you still slugging it all in your circumstances? Ah, this is bad. This is terrible. I hate life. I don't know if many people are going to sign up to come and talk to you about spiritual things. Because there's nothing inspiring about that. Paul's buoyant faith is what lifted him above. And I think that's the first component of why people were drawn. Say, I got to meet this man. You kidding me? He's in Rome? I definitely want to take him up on that. And we see a second thing coming out of Paul's life. Um, this perspective that comes through again as he's writing to the Philippians. Second thing, he's, he's realized, Paul's realized that God wastes nothing. He wastes, now we can waste a lot, but he will waste Nothing. Look at what he says in verse 13. As a result of my being here in prison, it's become very clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everybody else that I'm in chains for Christ. In other words, I could be just all shriveling up and discouraged because here I am, but hey, what I've realized is I can actually leverage this time. Because God wastes nothing. They're discovering that I'm here for Christ, which makes them want to know more about Christ. Now, what, what did Paul love doing more than anything? He loved doing evangelism. He was a church planter. He was a missionary. He loved sailing around the, the, the Mediterranean, going to new places and, and being apostolic and starting new, new things and all of these places. That's been stripped from him now. He can't do that anymore. They've taken away his pulpit, right? Wrong! He's realized, you know what? Four hours, that's six guards per day. If you average that out over two years, that's more than 4,300 guards I'm going to get to share the gospel with. That's not bad for an evangelist, right? He, he, and we know that it was working because we see something that he writes later to the Philippians in chapter 4, 21 and 22. Look at at this and follow this. He says, Philippians, give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ up there in Philippi. The brothers who are with me, they send their greetings too. Now look at this. And all the rest of God's people send you greetings, especially those in Caesar's household. What was he signaling? He was signaling, it's okay, Philippians, Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm under the Roman authority. But these guards who are strapped to me, some of them are trusting in Christ. They're taking the gospel back into the palace. Some of the emperor's family have even trusted in Christ. And they're sending greetings to you, Philippians. And so is, what's your name? Joe. Joe? Yeah, Joe. Joe's here. He's chained to me right now. Hello, Philippians. Uh, He's sending a greeting as well. That's what Paul is doing. He's signaling to the Philippians. Look at what's happening. God's not wasting anything. He can leverage any situation at all. Now, I tell you this because I have a feeling that many of us, we go through our lives feeling like this is a waste. 
I could be doing so much more. I could be having it so much better. But I'm chained. I'm chained. Some of you, you say, I feel chained to my neighbor. Can't stand them. Wish they'd move. In fact, I'd even go buy the sign for it and stick it out front. <laughs> Maybe you feel chained inside your marriage. This hasn't turned out quite the way that you had always dreamed it would be. Or maybe you feel chained into a job. You like to be unchained, but you can't really find anything else. So maybe you're a parent. Maybe especially a mom. I, I notice this especially with mothers. And, and you've done more, and you say to yourself, I can do so much more than this. But there you are with your kids. And you love them. But let me tell you a story that maybe can be helpful. It's a story of Susanna Wesley. She lived in the 1700s. And she had 19 children. That's a lot of kids. And uh, some of them died early, as happened back in those days. And most of them never became famous. But the interesting thing is Susanna Wesley, she had this amazing system by which she was methodically spending time with every single child to invest in them, to make sure that they were having spiritual fortification laid into their souls. And, and, and it's really quite a case study in parenting. It's like, how did you organize all of that? But she was doing it. And what was the most well-known fruit? Two of those children, they became very famous. They got shot like a cannonball out of the cannon across the British islands. John, her son John Wesley, and Charles, her son Charles. John was the evangelist who, who would lead tens of thousands of people to trust in Christ in the 1700s. And Charles was the hymn writer. He'd go around and he'd write all these amazing hymns. We still sing some of them, like Hark the Herald Angel Sings. You know, that, that Wesley was writing those hymns. In fact, I was reading one preacher that summed it up, consider, saying, consider how Susanna Wesley furthered the gospel even as she was imprisoned in the home. Now, incidentally, let me quickly say, if you're working outside the home or inside the home, I'm not making it, so therefore you should not do this. Or, I'm not saying that. Because what I tried to say a moment ago is what I want you to get. We can feel imprisoned anywhere we are, working inside the home, working outside the home with our neighbors. We can feel imprisoned, but, but what we need to learn here from Paul is that whether you're working at a desk or on an assembly line or in a classroom or a car sales position, you have a pulpit. You have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. If you're a student, if you're a plumber, if you're a lawyer, you, it doesn't matter. If he could use Paul in chains, he can use you as well in your situation. See, he, he wastes nothing. I really learned that in living color from a friend some years ago. I was in my young 20s. I was still in seminary at Asbury Seminary. And I went one day to volunteer at the, at the food kitchen, uh, downtown Lexington, Kentucky. And there I met a little man uh, called Art Fleeser. 
He was approaching 70 at that point. And when I say little, I mean he was a little man of stature. But he was a little wiry, energetic person. He always had joy and a sparkle in his eye. And there he was serving. And what do you do? Well, I go to seminary. He says, oh, well, you know what? I used to be a professor across the street at Asbury University. Yeah, what'd you teach? I was a speech professor. Yeah, what about now? He says, well, now I'm retired. So I just serve different places like here I am today. And you have family? Well, actually, my wife... She died of breast cancer some years ago. Oh, he loved his wife. And he missed her so much. And he had two grown daughters. And they'd moved on. So he was just by himself. Well, we became quick friends. And I wasn't the only one. He was befriending a lot of people at the seminary. And, and, and the thing about Art is he just loved to give his life away. He would say, you come over here anytime. He had a home that had two guest bedrooms. And he said, even when you graduate, you come back for a conference, or later I'd be asked to be on the board at the seminary. Whenever you come back, you, can, you know you can always stay here and let me know ahead of time, and I'll make a big meal for us. That's just how Art was. He loved to um, leverage all of life for the glory of God, breathe wind into the sails of every person he came in touch with. He loved hearing about the new church, back then Faith Bridge, and then as I married, hearing about Suzanne, and then when Wesley came, and then when William came, and he was following their progress. He always was excited to hear what was going on. And then finally, I got my last letter from him about six years ago, right after Harvey. He was 93, and in the letter, he had enclosed a $100 check for the Harvey Fund that we had. And he wrote, praising God that you and the church are safe. He said, Ken, I've, I've continued to fall. And so I've decided it's time to move to the personal care unit here in the village. I'll be unable to take everything with me to my new room since it's smaller Therefore, I'm going to give up my desk and my computer, and that way I can keep my upright piano. He loved hymns. When I'd go over, he'd say, go play a hymn, Ken. Play Amazing Grace. Play another one. He loved just to listen and to sing. I'll be able to keep my piano. And since I won't have email, please write using my new U.S. mail address beneath. I haven't forgotten you, Ken. And I do pray for you, and I'm grateful for these decades of friendship the Lord has given us. And I'll see you again in heaven, trusting you into God's care and keeping. I know he's taking care of me, and I have so much for which to give him thanks. Love, Art. I wasn't the only one he sent letters like that to and I've imagined how many people would have missed out if Art had just shriveled up when his wife had died 35 years ago now and just waited for his life to, to run out. But he, he was like, I know God doesn't waste anything, so he must still have some things for me to do. And so he was always curious and eager to go out and figure out what they were and to try to contribute and be a part of that. Because he knew every stage of life can be leveraged for God's sake.
Paul understood that. Prison, that's not my preference, but it's not so bad. God wastes nothing. It'll be my pulpit. Third and final thing we see in Paul's triumphant, resilient faith. He realized that his winsome witness was strengthening others. It was bolstering others. You see that in verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. And they're daring all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so Philippians, you don't have to worry about me. Not only is this working out in a way that's actually expanding the gospel, changing soldiers' lives and others in the palace and but the believers who are coming and going, I've realized they're getting stronger and more courageous and bold in their faith because of watching me. I think they've concluded if I can live victoriously while I'm strapped into a guard here in prison and I can't go anywhere, then maybe they're realizing, you know what? If Paul can do it, all the more. How much could I live if I allowed the Holy Spirit to work in me like he's working in the apostle Paul? Friends, if you're a believer, and I trust most of you are, you and I, we have to realize there's a world of people watching you and me. A world of people that does, they don't know Christ so much. And but maybe if you've told them you're a Christian, that then you've got to realize they're watching. What are you showing them? Is it inspiring? Is it unique? Is it distinct and different and contagious? Or is it, ho-hum, I don't think there's anything different about you whatsoever. And I think we have to understand this, friends, because especially as our culture slides further and further out of the convenient alignment that we've long enjoyed here in America, where the Judeo-Christian ethic was generally understood and accepted and appreciated by most people, even non-believing people. That day is over, friends. We no longer function as the benign chaplains of City Hall. and We no longer leading prayers under the lights of Friday night football games. We Christians, you have to realize, we're occupying a far more humble place in society nowadays. My friend J.D. Walt writes about that. He says, it's like we're back in the days of Castor and Pollux. Who were they? The gods on the front of the ship. J.D. writes, it's like we're back in the world of Castor and Pollux. Those deities who were framed on the, sh on the front of Paul's ship to Rome. Now, J.D. writes... We find ourselves living again in their world. The rationalism of the enlightenment is giving way to all sorts of wild spiritualities. There's a myriad of ways for people to be misled by false teachings and enslaved to false gods. But there's an upside. What's the upside? The mission of the gospel has always been most at home 
in this kind of hostile environment. We find ourselves living in a period of history that is far more in common with the world of the Bible than the world that most of us grew up here in America. The stage, he writes, is being set, don't you see, for another great awakening. And so rather than continue to lament the loss of so-called Christian America, isn't it time for us to step up and reclaim our New Testament nerve and recover our apostolic mojo? That's going to require massive shifts in the way that we understand ourselves as followers of Jesus and our role as the church in this day and age. But what a difference it could make if we realized Salvation won't come from anywhere else but Jesus. <laughs> we can ask politicians all day long, won't you bring it to us? They'll try, but they can't. What we need is spiritual revival in this land. But imagine if all of us were living like Paul lived, with this robust, contagious sort of faith that was drawing others towards Christ. Imagine if we were living that way, what could happen? I think we'd see what happened with, well, just throughout history. All sorts of people who've, whose lives were given for the sake of the gospel. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, whose book I've been reading again in the 1940s. William Tyndale, whose life was given because he wanted to get the gospel out and the Bible written a thousand years ago so that common people could have. And going back to Polycarp and others like him. I've told you about Polycarp, but I always draw inspiration. And so I'll close with his story. Polycarp was, was a Christian who lived about 100 years after Jesus. He was 86 years old. And the Roman authorities were cracking down on Christianity, exterminating Christians left and right. And one day they came to his door to take him, the 86-year-old away. And he did something so counterintuitive. He said to those soldiers, welcome. I figured you'd be coming, but before you take me away, come on in and let me serve you dinner. And the servants come here serve and so the soldiers are all eating their dinner and they're like what is so wrong with this guy he seems like a sweet old man why are we coming to take him away and finally after he's fed them and he's like okay i guess it's time now and so he went with them and he would have his trial where they would say deny christ as lord and you can live just say caesar is lord you don't have to die what did polycarp say Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He said, for 86 years, Christ has been faithful to me, and he's never done me any wrong. How could I deny him now? They said, because if you don't, we're going to burn you at the stake. He said, well, then, light the fire. Tradition tells us that he gathered with the believers who asked, how will we know that it's okay with you? He says, oh, God's grace has sustained me all these years, and he'll sustain me through the fire. But I'll give you a signal. When I'm dying in the fire, I'll hold up one finger. And when I do, you'll know it stands for 
God's grace is enough. And so they tied him to the stake and put the wood under his feet. The women are crying and the men are trying to bolster them. And then the fire was struck and he begins to be consumed. And he holds up one finger and says, his grace is still enough. And then he did one more. Right before he died, tradition says, he held up a second finger, meaning more than enough. His grace is more than enough. And did that wipe out Christianity? No. See, and I think that's what we're afraid of. Oh, Christianity's going to be wiped out if, if we keep losing election. No, no, no. It's not how it works. What happened? Revival continued to happen because people who watched that said, not I want out. They said, I want in. Whatever he has inside of him, I want inside of me. Jesus, tell me about him. I want him to come into me. And I think, friends, this is why Luke ends as he does. Incidentally, you say, well, how did Paul die? We don't know that for certain, but tradition tells us um, he would live on for six, seven, eight more years. But then he would be re-arrested in the tough days of Nero's reign. And that time he would be thrown in the dungeon prison. And that time he knew, hmm, this is going to be the end for me. But it's all right. He's already said to live as Christ, to die is gain. He said that years prior. And so we know because of what he wrote in 2 Timothy, when he wrote his, his protege, his disciple, one last time. And he says, now, Timothy, I've run my good race. I've fought the good fight, and I've kept the faith. You, now you do the same, Timothy. And those were his parting words. Tradition tells us that then he was beheaded. Which begs the question, why did Luke not include that? Well, that might be an anticlimactic ending there, right? But his purpose wasn't really ever to exalt the story of Peter in the first chapters of Acts or Luke in the back chapters of Acts. Luke's purpose all along was always from beginning to end to illustrate once the Holy Spirit came into the believers and for the next 30 years, Jesus had said, start in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. And what he's saying here is, we're in Rome. That is about the ends of the earth. In those days, the gospels come all the way across the Mediterranean. And there's Christians here in Rome and they're spreading even beyond. And by walking away at this point in the story, Luke masterfully keeps Jesus. Not Paul, not Peter, not anybody else. Jesus as the center point of the whole story. It's as if he's saying to Theophilus and anybody else who would read, the gospel wins. And he says as much 
His mission is moving on, verse 31, with all boldness and unhindered. Now do you see, there really is quite a climax to that. But there is one question that's begged. Is the gospel moving forward in a way that's bold and unhindered through you? That's the inference. It was sort of a to-be-continued ending. That's what he was doing. He was saying, hey, these guys, they did what they were called to do. Now, how about you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the very inspiring story of Paul's life and Polycarp's life and others who, well, roundaboutly, we stand on all their shoulders as we are believers today. God, would you give us that sort of renewed spirit to rise above our circumstances, not to sit around complaining about them, to realize you'd waste nothing. We're pretty good at it, but you would waste nothing. You'd leverage everything. If we'd see every day that we have as our pulpit opportunity to let your light shine through us to others. And would you help us to realize that others are watching us and we'll derive strength and, and boldness and courage if they see a winsome witness and that revival might even come once again as it did in China in the last century in England in the 1700s and throughout Europe in the 15 and 1600s and going back to the early 300 years of Christianity. Lord, would you do a new thing in and through us? Make us your winsome witnesses with Jesus on our lips every day. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We pray it in your name.